We are now on Yevamos Samachvav Amaral of 66a, towards the very bottom. The Gemara now is going to be discussing uh, the Nichsei Tzon Barzel. As we mentioned in our introduction to this chapter, to the Perak and to this Mishnah, we mentioned that there are there is property that the wife brings into the marriage, and there are two different ways in which the husband can relate to this property that she brings into the marriage. There's something called Nichsei Tzon Barzel, and there's something called Nichsei Melod. Nichsei Tzon Barzel is essentially uh, that the wife brings it into the marriage, but now it belongs to the husband. And if the marriage ends, either through divorce or through death, so then she gets back the monetary value of that object, or of those objects. Um, and that is what she gets back, but essentially it belongs uh, to the husband. Nichsei Melug is that it really it belongs to the wife the entire time. And she doesn't just get back the monetary value of those objects, but if those objects go up in value, so then it's to her benefit. If they go down in value, if it depreciates, so then it's to her loss. It's a loss for her. Um, but the husband has rights uh, to use the, those objects. He can use them during the marriage, but essentially it is owned by her. The Gemara now gets into an interesting conversation and discussion about the Nichsei Tzom Barzal. It's really limited to the Nichsei Tzom Barzal, to the, uh, to the, the, uh, the kalim, the utensils, the objects that she brings into the marriage, in which they decide that she will get back the monetary value uh, of those objects from the point in time when she brought it in. So let's say she, she was married and she brought in certain utensils that were worth $100, so then she gets back $100 at the end of the marriage. Whether or not the objects themselves go up or down, in value, she deserves $100 at the end of the marriage. So the Gemara will discuss now, well, let's say that object was still intact at the end of the marriage. Let's say they get divorced and it's still intact. Does she have rights to the object itself? Could she say, you know, it's, it's still around, it still exists, give it to me. And the Gemara will also discuss, well, what exactly does it mean? Who owns, in the end of the day, who owns the object? Does he own the object? The husband, does the wife own the object? Who owns this object uh, that she brings into the marriage? It's true that if it goes up in value, it's to his advantage. And it works out well for him. If it goes down in value, it's his loss. Uh, And she gets back the monetary value. But in the end of the day, when it comes to ownership and various ramifications of ownership, such as could she uh, request or demand that the actual object, if it's still intact, goes back to her, or, for example, does anybody have the right to sell this object to uh, another person? Do they have such a right? So those are all different issues that will be discussed in uh, this recording and the next recording. So the Gemara says as follows. Itmar. So they make, uh, uh, they, they assess the, the, uh, the value. How much is, is different, are different objects that, or, that uh, she brings into the marriage? Essentially, it's the reason why they're they are figuring out the value is because that's how much she will be getting at the end of the marriage, whether it's through divorce or through death. And then it's the end of the marriage. At the end of the marriage, she says, let's say they get divorced, she says, give me back my, give me everything back, everything that I brought into the marriage, give it back to me. And he says, no, I'm only giving you the monetary value. Now it's just important to note, we'll see this at the very end of the Gemara, but it's just important to note, Let's say the object went up in value, 
so then, and she demands for the for the object. Uh, so, according to the position, we'll see that this is a dispute. But according to the position that holds that she actually is deserving of the object itself, she would take the object, but then she would have to pay her husband for the difference because the it uh, it, it was really belonging to her husband during the marriage. And so therefore, when it went up in value, it was for him. And so he would, she would have to pay him for the difference. So, hadin and me, who, who, gets, this, who gets the object? Rav Yehuda Omer hadin ima. Rav Yehuda says, it belongs to her. Rav Ami Amar hadin ima. Rav Ami says, no, it belongs to him. Rav Yehuda Omer hadin ima. Mishum shvach hava. Rav Yehuda says, it belongs to her. Because it's a benefit that comes from her family. She, she received this. Presumably she received this uh, from her family, and this was an extension of her family, and her family wants her to have it, and so therefore it's an object that belongs to her, and should go back to her. Uh, that's the position of Rav Yehuda. Rav Ami, I'm right now, Rav Ami says no. Uh, it stays, it could stay with the husband. He has, he has an obligation to pay back the monetary value from the, from the time of the, of the marriage, but... The actual object stays with him. Because we have in our Mishnah, what's the proof for Ravami? The proof is from our Mishnah. We know that if it goes up in value, it's to his benefit. If they die, let's say, if the slaves, which is our Mishnah, the non-Jewish slaves that are given to him, they die, so then it's his loss. Uh, because he is, in the end of the day, responsible for this. And in fact, not only is he responsible, but the Mishnah says that these slaves are allowed to eat truma. It seems all to point in the position, in the direction that it's his. He is the owner, and that's the position of Ravami. So therefore, he would be he would be allowed to keep it. Amr of Safra, Rav Safra says back, "What are you talking about?" In the Mishnah, the Mishnah never says that it's actually his. It doesn't say that it belongs to him. No, no, it says that the reason why these slaves, these non-Jewish slaves, are allowed to eat truma, it's not because it's his, that he owns it, but it's because he is responsible. He's, he has responsibility towards it. He, he has to uh, feed them, and he also, if it's a loss, he incurs the loss. He has to be, he's the one who's held responsible for what happens with these slaves. But it doesn't mean that he actually owns it. It never says so in the Mishnah. It just says that he's responsible. And this is a question on Rav Ami, a proof to Rav Yehuda that really she owns it and therefore she could say and demand that she gets the objects back. And this is a question that's never answered in the Gemara. This is a pretty strong proof to the position of Rav Yehuda. We'll see that we actually follow the position of Rav Yehuda to say that we follow her, that it goes based on if she makes such a demand, so then we give her back the actual object. Okay, and that's Rav Safra's response back. Now, the Gemara has, goes on a bit of a, a, a short tangent here because according to what Rav Safra said, when do the slaves, the non-Jewish slaves, when do they eat truma? So they only eat truma, or not when, but why. Why do they eat truma? Because the, uh, the Kohen, the, uh, the, the husband and the master, he is responsible uh, for them. And if there's a loss, he incurs the loss. So he's held responsible, not because necessarily he owns it, but because he's responsible for them. So the Gemara says, Is that true? 
is it is that what is that what is necessary in order for a person's slaves uh, to eat truma? It has to be that they are responsible uh, for for them. It's not that they, they don't have to own it, but they just have to be responsible for them. Vatanam, but we have another Mishnah in Trumos, which says Yisrael shesachar para mekohen harez yochlenu karshine truma kohen shesachar para meYisrael afapishem isonosel alav lo yochlenu karshine truma. We have a strong question on this because uh, the Mishnah says that if a Yisrael, a non-Kohen, rents a cow from a Kohen. We pointed out in our introduction to the Mishnah that it's not just uh, the daughter of a Kohen, it's not just the wife of a Kohen, it's not just the slaves, the non-Jewish slaves of Kohanim who are also allowed to eat truma, this special food that belongs to a Kohen, but also the Kohen's animals are allowed to eat truma. You're not allowed to feed animals to a, a a non-Kohen's animals, because it's special truma, special food for the Kohen, but if it's a Kohen's animals, then they are allowed to eat truma. So what happens if you have the following case? A non-Kohen, a Yisrael, rents a cow from a Kohen. So the owner is a Kohen, he's renting it out. When a person rents a cow from somebody else, so they are, they do have certain levels of responsibility. They have to make sure it doesn't get stolen, that it doesn't get lost. And if it does get stolen or lost, so then they're held responsible. So the Yisrael is held responsible. And yet, what is the halacha? The halacha is that they could feed them truma. Because since the owner is a Kohen, they could feed them truma. And if it's the opposite, if the Kohen is renting from a non-Kohen, so then they're not, even though they have to feed the animal, they have responsibilities to feed the animal to make sure that it doesn't get stolen, they are not allowed to feed a truma. Because in the end of the day, it seems as though we go based on the owner. And the owner is a non-Kohen. So you're not allowed to feed a truma. If the owner is a Kohen, but the Yisrael, the non-Kohen is renting it, so then they are allowed to eat truma. So this seems to go against what we just mentioned. We just said that uh, truma is based not on ownership, but really based on responsibility. Who's responsible? This Mishnah seems to be the total opposite. Because we say that it goes based on who's the owner, not based on who's renting. So the says, wait a minute. Hold on. There's different levels of responsibility, says the Gemara. Uh, when a person rents uh, an animal from somebody else, so they're responsible. It's true they're, they're held accountable if it gets stolen or lost. But they don't have such a high level of responsibility like a husband does. The husband, when he takes in the property of his wife, so he is responsible for even if it's just uh, against, out of his control. Something happens out of his control, it gets taken away, out of his control. Or if it goes down in value, it's just weaker. That He incurs the loss. The husband incurs the loss. That's a higher level of responsibility. So maybe there are different levels of responsibility. It's true. If you're only held accountable for if it gets stolen or lost, so then fine. So then that won't be a determining factor for whether or not your animal or your slave uh, could eat truma. But if you have a high level of responsibility, like the fact that uh, you're responsible for, even if it depreciates in value, just on its own, or it gets weaker on its own, uh, so then you're held accountable for that. So that's a high-level responsibility. So that's more comparable to the Seifa, El Seifa. The, the Seifa is the end of that Mishnah, has another two cases. It's not about renting, but it's Yisrael, Shisham Parame Kohen, Lo Yochlenu Karshine Chuma, Ava Kohen, Shisham Parame Yisrael, Yochlenu Karshine Chuma. Over here we have a case uh, where the Yisrael takes, the non-Kohen takes a cow from a Kohen and it has a similar setup as Nechzitzon Barzal. Essentially, 
He's saying, I'm taking the cow and I have to pay you back the monetary value. Meaning if, it, if, the, cow, if the cow sorry, uh, goes up in value, if it appreciates, so then it's to the taker, the Yisrael, the non-Kohen, to his benefit. If it depreciates, it's his loss. Uh, but he's going to pay back. If he, if, he went to t- if he took the cow for a certain amount of time and uh, at the time that he took the cow, you know, the cow costs, I don't know, uh, $500 dollars. Uh, so then when he pays back, he has to pay back $500, even if the cow goes up or down in value, it doesn't make a difference. So in such a case, because the person who took it, the non-Kohen who took it, uh, incurs the loss, regardless, no matter what, he always incurs the loss. So then, because it's a non-Kohen, even though the Kohen is the one who gave it to him, so then you cannot eat truma because it's a high level of responsibility. So we, it is, in fact, uh, it, it, it fits with everything that we're saying. It's based on this higher level of responsibility, not a low level of responsibility, but this highest level of responsibility where any form of a loss, totally against your will, uh, you will incur. And if it's the opposite also, let's say it's the Israel who's giving his cow to the Kohen, and the Kohen is now accepting upon himself uh, that all losses, any loss to the animal, he will incur it. Any gain, he will benefit from so there too, Yochlanu Karshin Truma. Since the Kohen is doing this, the Kohen is allowed to eat Truma. The Kohen is allowed to feed his animals Truma. So, so too over here, he is allowed to feed his animals uh, Truma. So this fits very nicely with what Rav Safra said. In the end of the day, it seems to be that you're allowed to feed your, your non-Jewish slaves and your animals Truma food, a Kohen can feed them, as long as they have this highest form of responsibility where no matter what, they will incur the loss even if they're not in control of it, and they will also benefit from it if it appreciates in value. Um, and so that, that's what the Gemara says. The Gemara now continues, and it returns back to our topic of Avdei Tzombarzal. Remember, we had this big dispute between Rav Ami and Rav Yehuda. She brings it into the marriage. The husband now uh, has this high-level responsibility that uh, of Achrayos where... Uh, he either benefits or loses, depending on what happens to these objects, but he has to pay back his wife at the end of the marriage, uh, the, the amount that it, that it was worth at the time of the marriage, at the beginning of the marriage. Um, so the question is, well, who gets the objects at the end of the day? If the objects are still intact, who gets it? Ravami said the husband, Rav Yehuda says the wife. So Igmar points out, Yasuf Rabbi Yosef Bishilik Pirkei Nachman, Vyasuf Tanya Kavasid Ravihuda, but Tanya Kavasid Ravami. Rav and Ravihuda, they both say that there is a brisa, there is a proof from a brisa in support of both opinions. What is that? Tanya Kavasid Ravami, there is a brisa which supports the position of Ravami who says that really the husband completely owns it. And he can say, I don't have to give you the object, even though it's still intact. What's the proof? The proof is, is that there's a separate law, a separate, different ramification for who the owner is. Uh, that for a non-Jewish slave, if a master uh, knocks out a tooth or an eye of the slave, the slave automatically goes free. Automatically goes free if it's done by the master. If it's done by anybody else, it doesn't go free. But if it's done by the master, the slave automatically goes free. Well, what happens if you have a similar case? Avdeton Barzal. The wife brings into the marriage slaves, non-Jewish slaves, and it's this scenario where the husband uh, is responsible for these slaves. So if the, the law is, this is the brisa, that if it's the husband who um, knocks out a tooth or an eye, 
So then they go free. But if it's the wife, doesn't go free. This seems to be a pretty clear proof that the husband is is uh, is the full owner uh, because it has ramifications with regards to Shein Ve'ayin, with regards to who is viewed as the owner when it comes to knocking out the tooth or the eye of the slave and therefore the slave goes free. We say the husband and not, specifically not the wife. However, there's a bright side in the opposite direction which supports Rabbi Huda. What is that? What is that price? The says that if we have a similar scenario, nobody is allowed to sell it. The husband cannot sell it. Certainly the wife cannot sell it. The wife can't sell it because... During the marriage itself, it uh, belongs to the husband. But even the husband cannot sell it. And not only because the husband cannot, can't sell it, but if he does sell it, so then it's not viewed as a valid sale. It automatically has to go back, even without the wife claiming that it should go back. Even if the wife died before the husband died, she's not making any claims. Uh, but it's, just, it's, not, it's not a valid sale. It's not a legitimate sale. He has no right to, to sell it. Um, and we, it has to return back to him. Whoever bought it has to return it back to him. He has no right to sell it. This seems to be a pretty good proof that he is not the owner. She is, in the end of the day, the full owner. He has certain rights and responsibilities. But in the end of the day, according to this price, that this supports the position of Yehudah to say, she ultimately is the owner. And therefore, at the end of the marriage, uh, she, if she asks for the objects back, she deserves the objects. Uh, that seems to be uh, this price that seems to be in support of such a position because it says even the husband cannot sell these objects. And it's not a valid sale if he does go through with it. Let's go a little further. We'll probably go beyond the 20-minute mark, but we'll try to finish uh, this page in this recording and get up to the next Mishnah by the end of this recording. We follow the position of Yehuda. That's what Rav says. This is what Rav Nachman says. So Rav Nachman says, uh, but isn't there a b'risa in support of Rami? There are two b'risas. There are two b'risas, sources from the times of the Mishnah. One supports Ravami, one supports Rav Yehuda. How did you pick Rav Yehuda over Ravami? These are two b'risas from earlier sources. I think my answer is no. Uh, still, uh, because uh, it's true there's a b'risa in support of Ravami, but because the logic of Yehuda is makes sense, uh, so he seems to be correct. In the end of the day, uh, she is deserving of it because it's what the family, her family, let her keep and they want the objects back. It's really, they, they set it aside for her and they gave it to her thinking that this is now part of the family's property, probably part of uh, what the family owns. And so therefore it should go back to her. Okay. We have now the following story. Very interesting story. Hahi Isisa the Aili Leili Gavra. So there was a woman who itztala de milsa biksubasa. So gave uh, the wife brought into the marriage a certain cloak, garment, uh, to her husband as nechseitzon barzel, as this type of nechseitzon barzel, which he uh, he gets to use and he uh, incurs the loss, benefits from the gain. And uh, now he has this shachet. So he dies. So according to Yehuda, what should happen? It should go back to her. But what happened? The Yisomim, the children, then go take this cloak and they bury him in this cloak. They bury him in this cloak. Now once you bury in a cloak, 
whatever they get buried in, this is a general rule, very interesting rule, when a person gets buried, it's parallel to hektish. It's parallel to uh, anything which is designated for the base of Migdash, and therefore it is forbidden to benefit from it. You're not allowed to benefit from it in any way. You're not allowed to benefit from it. So Amar Rava, Kanya Misna. Rava says, uh, the, they, uh, it, was, it was owned by uh, Kanya Misna. It, it works. It's, a, it's valid. And uh, they don't have to return it back to, to their mother. The father is buried in these garments which she brought in to the marriage. And so the Gemara is going to ask, how, how, why should we be able to do this? This goes against uh, Rav Yehuda. Rav Yehuda says it should go back to her. Uh, but I am noticing that it's that we are beyond the 20-minute line and there's a little bit more to do that needs more explanation. So I will have a fourth recording uh, to we'll go back to begin this story and we will conclude uh, the Gemara till the next Mishnah um, in the next recording.